Hey everybody, my name is Alex, this is Lunchbox Radio, and um, before we get started, I wanted to thank everybody who listened to the last podcast on Magical Shopping Arcade Abanabashi. If you have not heard that episode, definitely go check it out, it's the, literally the previous one on the feed. That's a great, at this point, older show from the early off that is like baked in the juices of otakudom and nerddom and like specific kinds of nerddom that you would usually be more applicable to find in Japanese otaku who are obsessed with things like American culture which sounds like such an odd thing for like an American fan to see but there's I posted a clip on um that's actually still kind of going Ape shit on um, TikTok that is from the episode with um that is all like American action movie themed and it's wild so go check that out. But what I want to talk about today <coughs> is a big movie that came out this week that came out last week and um, it actually beat out a, another movie that came out last week. And you will be surprised because what we're going to talk about today is a little movie called Pompo the Cinephile. I'm here! Tis I, Pompo! I've been Pompo's assistant for about a year now. I'm so sorry. Being able to pick the brain of one of the industry's greats from such a young age. With the right lead, Pompo can transform any screenplay into a good movie. Watching and learning from the sidelines. Gene! Gene, hey! I'm going to let you shoot this screenplay of mine. Best of luck, Director Gene! Occasionally, an entire story will unfold in your mind when you meet that special someone. I'm here to audition, and I am never going to give up! No! Too plain! The name's Martin Braddock, the best actor in the world. Just know that I will never hesitate to give you my opinion. It's incredible how a B-movie producer such as yourself managed to write such a perfectly crafted, poignant story. Ah, I see, I see. So you think I'm nothing more than a B-movie producer? I'm so sorry! Who do we make movies for? All you have to do is think about the one person you want to show the movie to the most. I feel so giddy that I'm trying not to faint. Yeah, me too. The movie saved me. I will not abandon my dreams. This is all I have. My art. Ah! This is what's wrong with you film buffs! Now, for those of you who are wondering why I'm not talking about Bubble, I am going to talk about Bubble, but I'm going to be talking about that the in the next Thursday episode, which will be next week, so you can look forward to that. But the reason why I'm talking about Pompo the Cinephile now is because it's it's a smaller but better film. It's certainly 
wouldn't necessarily say it's smaller in scope, but it's certainly smaller in, you know, eyeballs that can view it because it is put out by a company that you've probably heard of if you're listening to this podcast called G-Kids. And what G-Kids does is they find animated movies from all over the world and they do limited releases in theaters. And the reason they do this is because they're doing limited releases in theaters so they can get these films kind of the American film world accolade that they think they that they think they and they definitely do deserve. So a bunch of years back a little film a little animated film called The Secret of Kells almost won the um was nominated for and like almost won the uh the and the Oscar for best animated film which generally goes to whatever Disney schlock has been like put out into the world. And I don't mean that as a like derogatory term to Disney it's just Disney has such a hold on the American audience that especially American audience of kids that they will feel better about watching something that's less experimental and more fun than they will watch something like Secret of Kells and the kind of infamously the the big anime film that won an Oscar it's bearded away and it's like that thing is like a whole other level of film, and um, but that's neither here nor there. So they picked up um, Pompo the Cinephile for release. I believe they picked it up in twenty in twenty twenty one in twenty twenty one. They picked it up in in twenty twenty. Um, in 2020, or they they hatched out in 2020. It is a movie from 2021, and it so it's a little older. It's an otter. It's certainly an otter take on a story because generally, when you see a movie called Pompo the Cinephile, and you see a girl, and it says the girl is named Pompo. You think that's going to be the main character. But the main character isn't necessarily Pompo. She's certainly a presence. And she's more like a force in the entire movie. And less like a... And less like a main character. Think of her like... Um, Sinbad from... Uh, from... What's it called? From... From Maji. Almost. But like... As a film producer... And a facilitator of kind of the dreams of film. And what she ends up doing is she ends up, um, I believe, writing the script for um, a movie called Maestro. That the, the, the film called Maestro. And she gives it to her production assistant to direct. And her production assistant is a guy named um, Gene, and Gene is he lo- he loves movies in the way it, he gives his um, he gives she gives this script to Gene to a character named Gene Feeney to direct, and Gene Feeney, which is a great name, honestly, top ten anime names, honestly, is a first time director. He is. 
he seems to display the same kind of love of movies that you see in lots of directors. If you talk to directors or if you even see interviews with directors, they name drop movies constantly. There's a film vernacular that runs through everybody, every other director who has ever worked. You know, and if you ask directors who their favorite directors are, you would probably be surprised. Um, and this is true of most people who work in film. A great, weird, very recent example of this is actually that new Nicolas Cage movie, um, The Incredible Weight of Massive Talent, which is, which, like, probably poses Nicolas Cage as, like, way out, way more out of the box than he actually is, but gets at something pretty important. And that pretty important thing is, like, actors are actors because they love it, because they love movies. That Entertainment and the arts in general is not a business that has a whole lot of tolerance for people who are just good at something and have no love for it. You have to have such a massive talent pool within you to overcome the fact that it is not the thing you love, but it's just the thing you do, that it becomes really difficult to fake that. So, a perfect example. I, for my job now, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm what I refer to as a furniture curator. And I have parts of my job that I like, and I have parts of my job that I don't like, but if I didn't have like a core like and a core appreciation for what I do and what I bring to the table, it would make it a lot harder because you would, a client would feel that from what I present to them. And so, and you can feel that in, you would feel that in performances in movies. It's what people call phoning it in. And oftentimes, sometimes the most fun you can have in a movie is when the movie's not very good, really good, but the but the actor playing a certain character is just eating it up and having the best time of his life playing this specific character in this otherwise kind of meh movie. And that happens, that happens not infrequently, actually. But the thing about this movie is, is that it is a love letter to the production of films. In a way that it... Not that it hasn't been done, because, I mean... Movies like The Artist exist. And if you don't know what The Artist is, The Artist is this movie about the transition from silent films to what they call the talkies, which is films with sound and dialogue, and how... Actors who were silent film stars, once they had to talk on screen, once they had to talk into a microphone, into a boom mic, they just sounded so weird, or they had, like, weird accents, that they just never worked again. And it was a real struggle. Now, granted, the artist was, like, a, was like a Best Picture winner at the Oscars, and it, that's because it did what the Oscars like these movies to do, 
and it like just didn't really it wasn't really entertaining it was boring as sin honestly um so movies about making movies and about film history have existed for a long time what is different about Pompo the Cinephile is Pompo the Cinephile is kind of filmmaking in the modern age. Filmmaking for people who grew up with people who appreciated films that we don't, that you don't watch really anymore. Like who appreciate black and white movies and older movies and stuff like that. Stuff that you would consider to be oldies at this point. And who take their love of film from that generation into their own generation and then, like, build off of that. So, when you meet Pompo, she is a producer at this huge film, film production company in this, like, massive building. And she's in, in, the fic- in a fictional version of Hollywood called Nollywood. Um, and everything is, like... A yeah, cat pun in this thing, like the back of the Apple Mac, the iMac that she that she has at her desk, has like a cat, has like an apple-shaped cat logo on it. It, it's there's a lot of dedication to the fake brand hilarity of this, and then there's a Pepsi logo drop later, like a big Pepsi logo drop. It's like oh, and then they paid Pepsi a lot of money, um, but. The long and short of it is she grew up with a grandfather who loved films and she got this like encyclopedic um, awareness of films that she took forward with her and she became an incredibly young, like high-powered producer. All the films she's choosing to make and the films that she's gotten her power from are incredibly are like 90 minute B BT like B movies, not the B movie, but like the kind of movie called like B B schlock horror movies and stuff. And that's kind of what she's producing, which are considerably lower budget than a normal film, but they're also they can also be incredibly entertaining. I mean, I'm talking about the kinds of films that you see in, like, a, a modern version of the kinds of films that you might see in, like, um, in Riff Tracks or something. That kind of film. And she's not really concerned with making films for prestige. She's concerned with making films to entertain. And the entire time there is the character, uh, the character who will become the main character... Um, Gene Feeney, who is a budding director. And I'm not sure whether Pompo writes the script for Meister or, um, actually, I think it says here that she does write it. Um, and it's considered to be her masterpiece of of a script. And she gives it to Gene to direct. And so Gene takes on the task of directing this film. And as a result, she 
he, you, Pompo casts the whole thing, so she casts a character um, named Braddock Martin, who is like a legendary think think older Brad Pitt almost like movie star, like an old like he walks around looking like um. What's his face from um the lightning guy from Fairy Tale is like a good equivalent for him almost. And so she casts him, and then opposite him she casts this young girl named um Natalie and Natalie Woodward, which is a, I'm sure a the this this movie is also filled with like. Natalie Woodward could be a reference to Natalie Wood. Bardock Martin is a bunch of references. They have references to all these different, really unique, interesting, like, moments of film history tucked into this movie that jump out at you later. Late And not just, like, film history as in film, but also... They have, they even drop a reference to the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. That is straight up what that is. And you're like, did they just reference a fucking documentary about Studio Ghibli? Okay. This movie wins. Um, but the long and short of it is, Gene is always really nervous about this because he can't really... What's the best word for it? He can't... He, uh, this is a lot of pressure to him. And the pressure is... Really, it's really unique in his mind because it's not... It's a, This is his first movie and because he's worked... Because the person who wrote it, it has so much pull in the industry. He has to, like, keep up. And he and there's this dinner. There's a scene in a dinner where, um, and then on top of that, the character um, Natalie is a totally unknown face, which means she has no experience acting. And like they show a montage of her just tra- just going to acting class after acting class and getting smacked down every time, and it's so it's like soul crushing, and it's a it's a pretty, like, brutal look at an actress learning to act and learning to really act instead of just pretend, if that makes any sense. And so they give, and they do a good job of this for characters who are supposed to be kind of your point of view characters. Um, they do a good job of it with Pompo. They do a good job of it with, um, the best job of it they do with Jean. And they do a pretty okay job with Natalie of fleshing them out and, like, drawing the, their own personal narrative out. So you feel like, oh, I'm attached to this character. I'm attached to that character. Character, other side characters like, um, a, like, hit, a, like, hit movie star act, a hit movie star um, character named Mysteria 
they do less with, but they do, but they use effectively. And um, Bardock Martin is straight up like, oh, this is what it's like to like be a first time actor. And Brad Pitt says yes to your script. Um, and so the the thing the movie does the best is that it shows the realities of making movies. Like they they show them shooting on set. They show them going to. They show them location scouting. They show them shooting on location. They show, um, they show them like they show m- movie crews like hanging out and like having dinner. They show like um, they show the craft services sec like section. They- <clears throat> One of the things that this does well that. <clears throat> <clears throat> For all of Entourage's issues, Entourage always did well. Is it shows the ephemera of making movies, and it shows <clears throat> it shows the act of directing. It shows the act of acting. It shows all this, all these different specific things. It also shows getting financing. It also shows <clears throat> ultimately kind of the financing system of Hollywood in a way that you don't you don't tend to see a whole lot of. <clears throat> now that's really where I want to go next with this is there comes a point in this movie where Gene is starting to edit the movie. And he's editing his own movie, which while not uncommon is not a thing that everyone does, editors are storytellers in their own right and are paid very well to edit to get to like edit together the final cut of a movie that will go on that will go into theaters but oftentimes if a director can't functionally edit the film because does not use the software or anything like that he'll oversee it at the very least but gene is editing his own movie. And here's where a movie could, uh, a adaptation of this story, because this story was a manga originally, could have gone south. And it, but instead it like knocks it out of the park. And that's showing someone editing on a computer can be very boring. Because a bunch of mouse movements and clicks and mouth movements and clicks and swig of Pepsi mouth movements and clicks. I said swig of Pepsi for a reason. And this movie does such a good job of showing you what it is to live with an unfinished film with tons of different scenes that have been shot over months. And shows you the decisions that go into leaving a scene in or out or leaving parts of a scene in or out or whether or not you need a new scene. And to that end, they need a... Gene realizes, like, we need a new scene. Like, we need a new scene. It needs to be right. It needs to be on location, which means that they have to get the entire crew back together, which is 
difficult to say the least. Uh, Pompo straight up, like, she yells at him. She goes at him because she wants him to buck up and say the thing he as director wants and needs to happen to make the film sing. And when he does, she's like a she had a huge grin on her face because she's like, he did the right thing. He stood up for what he thinks is right. That's the job of a director. And this is a common problem for people who work is people don't, people don't, people want to imagine that they're the boss, but they don't want to imagine that they have the, have to wield the power of being the boss of anything. So what I mean there is, you might want an executive CEO position, but you don't want to be the person who makes like a call at a car company that could mean the difference between this car selling a million units and this car being a hot trash fire. Because as much as you may know in your bones you're right, there will always be a moment when you've got to make the call and you could be wrong. And if you're wrong, what happens next? What are the consequences of that wrongness? And anybody would struggle with that. And anybody would struggle with that when, like, billions of dollars are invested in something. Because movies cost... Movies don't cost thousands. Movies cost, at the bare minimum, millions. At the bare, at, like, the maximum, they cost into, like... 61 billion dollars kind of thing that's why they need to make such huge returns to the box office and that's what box office reports are all about and the way pompo has done so well for herself is she's made small movies on like a shoestring she there's one good thing she has most likely done the rob zombie scenario but probably kinder is that She's made small movies at a, on a shoestring budget that are capable of really entertaining people. Like, they, they will be nobody's Emmy Award winner, but they will be everybody's favorite movie. Kind of thing. So, um, the long and short of that is, is when she pushes him, like, are you prepared for this? We have to get the... When she pushes him when he wants another scene, she says, are you prepared for this? All the people who are on our crew are, like, are working on other projects. I have to call in tons of favors, get all this stuff done. And she's giving him the real, she's giving him, like, the rub because she wants him to make the decision, but she wants him to make the decision knowing that, like, once he presses this button... He's pressed the button, and it's happening now. And he said, yes, the movie really needs it. And so she does it all. And she does it all happily. And the entire crew comes back together, and they shoot a final scene for this, for this movie. But the... The... And then the... And then he goes back into the editing room... And eventually exhausts himself editing. And because he had to do this final scene, they had to go get more funding. 
and this comes to what I believe is like one of the more honest points in the movie. Because the entire movie has been this concurrent character. I forget it. Um, I hope he's listed here. Um, I forget his name. But he, it's this character who's this like blonde guy, and he he becomes an investment banker, and he just kind of hates his job. And 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 this is this is a saying that is true of a lot of investment bankers: is that they grow to like not to. Not enjoy their job, but enjoy the money, so they stay. And the, but the thing that's true about investment banking is, once you've been an investment banker for long enough, you're like bred for that thing. You're not really bred for anything else. And the finance world does an excellent job of taking people who are very, who are pretty skilled at one thing, and honing them to be skilled. At a very specific thing, and that is making money, making extreme amounts of money for people. So there's a small gap from when you get hired to when you can't kind of work doing anything else. That you can make the choice, I don't want to do this. But past that, between the money you make and the amount of like, now unique skills that you have to invest in banking, it's really hard to leave those situations, to leave that behind, because something that's true of, something that's true of money is that your life can expand to however much money you have. And in order to shrink that back down, takes a lot of discipline, and you can't blame anybody for not wanting to do that. But, he he runs into Gene on this movie on this while they're on location shooting and while he's kind of trying and failing to land a new client to help land a new client and his his like his immediate superior really cares about him but he's also really disappointed in him because he's just not he's just not getting it he's not He's not putting in a whole lot of effort into what he wants to do. And this guy looks like, and he says as much, like, I never had to put in effort to be successful. I never had to, like, devote myself to something. And he sees Gene, and he sees someone who has devoted their whole soul to something. And in the movie, which I haven't, in the movie that Gene's directing, and in Gene's own life, there's a big, there's one big parallel. And that is, in order to be, like, the top of your field in the movie Meister, um, Barack Martin plays this, like, massive, seemingly massively egotistical symphony director who is just, like, the best symphony director in the world, but the worst person in the world. And in Gene's case, he had this, like, love for movies. And he, they the way they draw Gene, it looks like he's only ever sleeps an hour a week. <laughs> like, he's got huge bags under his eyes. He, like, wait, he looks like a 19, like a, like a stereotypical director with, like, the, like, clasped 
sleeve shirt and like the director pork pie hat and the whole thing. But he's got these huge circles under his eyes that looks like he's never slept a day in his life. It's incredible. But by the end of the movie, they have suggested this thing that that is because Gene has given his whole soul to making films and appreciating films. He spent, he stays up all night watching movies and taking notes. You know, once he's rented an editing bay, he almost kills himself editing the movie. Literally almost kills himself. He keeps himself awake with gallons of Pepsi, which is where the Pepsi logo, massive Pepsi logo drops come in. Because you always see him drinking specifically 20 liter Pepsi they get from the vending machine in the editing bay. But in the editing facility that he rents an editing bay in. And the result is this investment banker guy who went to school with Gene and like went down a different path in life is the investor who Gene and everybody who Gene and Pompo go to to invest in the movie to give more money to the movie. And what they do is they basically guilt the rest of this guy's investment firm into saying yes. They present them with the idea that like the reason why investment why investing exists in the first place is not necessary for us to make money. That's the byproduct. The byproduct should be that we are adding to society, we are producing art, we are helping to be the producers of people's dreams. And the way they do this is great. They straight up covertly stream the entire investment presentation of um, the movie. And they back everybody in the room who's not on board into a corner. And then the last thing they do is present the crowd, they present something that's a really real thing, the crowdfunding graft for, graft for the movie because they started a crowdfunding campaign. So if you don't know anything about specifically crowdfunding and animation, but also crowdfunding and movies, there's a specific way that people use crowdfunding. And that is they use it as a tool to prove viability. So let's say you have a movie you want to direct. And you, but you need money to do this. So what you would do is if you believed that it was popular enough is you could make a crowdfunding campaign and you could say, you could set it at $250,000. Or a number where you would think, oh, this is enough to prove that people want it, to prove that the returns would be there. And then you take that number, you take that chunk of change to an investor, you say, look, people want this. We just need this much more to get there. And then it's pure growth, baby. You're you're giving a half or a quarter or two thirds of the amount to produce a thing that will make you way more money in the end. And 
That combined with the live stream trick and all that stuff gets them the money and they finish the movie. And once the movie is finished, they have this whole reward cycle. They have the, they take you through a kind of montage of the award cycle. And yes, it's a little okay. It's a lot um, blown out of proportions and strange, but it's also a very it's like the best case scenario, and it is it is a thing that happens. Maybe you don't win best actor, best actress, and best picture and best direct and best picture, which is essentially best director. All in the same span of something usually, although it could happen more and more. But if a if an unknown movie, if an unknown director makes a film that wins an Oscar and it's his first film, that gives them so much more cachet and so much more influence and so much more power in the industry to do what they want. And you see, you see directors take wild goddamn swings on things when they win awards for doing something that was their first movie, but it was given to them. So, like, um... And you see this of actor, too. So, um... Chadwick Boseman, um, who passed away. Notably, he was Black Panther. And, um... The directors of Endgame, I forget the, the two brothers, liked him so much as Black Panther, and liked him as an actor so much, that they created a movie for him because he did a superhero role. And so that opened up something for him that was totally different and he could, and they continued to work with him. And that happened pretty consistently in the entertainment world. You know, once you do a voice, once you do a movie with Martin Scorsese, you're like on Martin Scorsese's list of like, he will do movies with you again, most likely. Once you, or something like Quentin Tarantino putting Samuel Jackson in like everything he ever does is another thing that happens constantly. And these, or Quentin Tarantino like, being like, I like Brad Pitt in this movie. Give him a call. And that also goes actor to actor. There's um, a cameo part in um, the in, in Massive Talent that was pretty surprising. That was definitely like, oh, someone just made a phone call. That's fine. Or um, cameo t thing in um, Treasure, in Treasure, I think it's called like Treasure Island, the Jennifer Aniston thing with... Um, with uh, Daniel Radcliffe as the bad guy, where they somebody like Jennifer Anderson clearly made a phone call to Brad Pitt to be in that thing for like a total of like not even ten minutes. It was very funny, but that stuff happens more often than you would think, and you build up those favors over time, and you build up just in general favor and cachet by being good at what you do you know um and yes those things are negated by like me too incidents being shitty over time 
stuff like that. Like the, the reason that Josh Whedon does not direct as much as he used to anymore is because he's kind of an asshole. And he's like got a very specific style that fell out of favor partially because he's kind of an asshole and partially because those movies all blend together like the same stupid things. And the this movie, although I know it won't get a sequel, I, I'm very well aware of the fact that this movie, that Pompo is not going to get a Pompo 2, although if it does, I'll be very happy. Um, but it's... It's showing you the kind of, uh, of yes, it's dramatized for, for, for the big screen version, but a version of how Hollywood works now and how Hollywood could work. And, and it, it's much closer to the truth, most likely, than not. So, and the reason why I want to talk about this movie first is because, and I'll go back over this in when I get to Bubble, when I do Bubble next week. But it's because this is a very, this is a much smaller scale movie than Bubble is. It's just as beautiful as Bubble, and it's but it's it, and it's not as it's not as seemingly experimental as Bubble is, but it is. Its story is more uniquely and interestingly told than Bubble is. If you if you've seen Bubble, then you kind of if you've seen Bubble, you can kind and you've watched a lot of anime, especially a lot of anime f- film. You kind of know what you're getting into with Bubble, and this you don't really know what you're getting into. The the um, synopsis is really. I didn't even really see a trailer for this. I read the synopsis and went and found the trailer after I read the synopsis. Drew me in because it was something that I was not prepared to see. I was like, oh, that isn't just like a fantasy adventure thing. This is like a weird, unique, interesting concept that may that may or may not pan out or be any good depending on the execution. The execution is excellent. Unfortunately I think its run is over now, but if you get the chance to see it or you still can see it in theater for some reason, definitely go see it in theater. It's worth it. It's gorgeously animated. Um the editing the 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 scene, the part of the movie where Gene is editing the movie, like the where Gene is editing his film, is incredible. It like it illustrates the undertaking of editing a movie down to like what is ultimately ninety minutes in a way that is in makes you understand what a big deal it is. It gives you the appreciation for editing as a practice in general. It's incredible. Um, but if you can't and you or you want to wait to you know download it off of iTunes 
just just go see this thing because it's it's worth your time. It's beautiful. It's really uniquely told, and that's all I can say about it. It's a it's a it's a fun. It's it's also just a fun movie. It's a fun thing to see. And the other thing is is it's a it's an original thing to see. You don't get the sense that there's any more that there's any more of this. You don't get the sense. It's not, and I, I will be talking about One Piece film V at some point. It's not like another One Piece movie or like a, one of the 37 Naruto movies or one of the like 15 Bleach movies or one of the 80 fucking Pokemon movies. It's, a, it's its own unique thing that's like encapsulated, but also presents exactly as much as you need or would want to know and takes you on a fun adventure, which is what good movies are supposed to do. And also, the other other thing about this movie is it's hard to make movies that are about making movies and the movie that the movie is about, that the movie is... There's a character in the movie are making, which is the same movie an awful lot of times. I'm sorry. Um, is makes any sense? And Meister, as a film, makes a lot of sense. It feels like an Oscar winner, and that's a that's like its own cool thing. It's not like this sh- like um the show that they had in Genshiken. I forget what it was called. They actually made... They tried to produce that thing and it was just hot garbage. Like that... Like the anime in Genshiken removed from Genshiken makes no real sense. It's just anime garbage. And the fact that Meister removed... Even with the, the pieces that you see removed from Pompo the Cinephile it's still an okay movie. It, at the very least, probably a pretty good movie. And that, on that note, um, if you like this podcast, new episodes come out every Thursday and Sunday. Thursday is episodes like this. They are about a film, a TV show, very occasionally a manga. And to that, and to that note. I am making May the month of movies, so next week will be Bubble. Um, the week after, I'm going to do One Piece Film V. Um, I have not decided on the fourth one yet, but I'll, I'll get there. But this entire month will be about anime movies in some way. So, um, on that note, I've been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. And I will talk to you on Sunday. ポンポさんが来たぞ。現実から逃げて逃げて、ここ以外に逃げ場所なんてどこにもなくて。物語が頭に溢れてくることがまれにある。ポンポさん何でも面白くできちゃうのよ。映画だけが。夢見る心を満たしてくれたの。あなたのデビューが決まったって話よ。
やっぱり私がヒロインなんて変なのかな映画は一人では作れないそれがどれだけ大変なことかわかる球場で一番幸せなのは間違いないな一番見てもらいたい誰かのために作ればいいんだこのシーンを撮るためにここまでやってきただろう監督信じますこの映画間違いなく僕の映画には一つ足りないシーンがあるんです